0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the algorithms of oppression. Not that they're made to be that way on purpose, but that it's a natural outcome of a profit-based system that incentivizes people to post the most click-baity content, while the system itself learns the viewer's weaknesses to ruthlessly feed them whatever will keep them engaged. Clips today come from The Brian Lehrer Show, Delete Your Account, Point of Inquiry, Ideas from the CBC, and On the Media.
1: Now, a lot of people know, with respect to YouTube, that when we select a YouTube video, it often plays that video and then goes on to a next one that YouTube's algorithm chooses, not you. It happened to me just this morning with a very harmless example before I read your article that that I chose a video by the jazz piano player Helen Sung, and after that it started playing one by the jazz piano player Joey Alexander, who I hadn't asked for. And I didn't realize I was listening to a different artist until I happened to glance at the screen. Totally harmless. But can you tell us about the experiment that you and some of your BuzzFeed colleagues did with that function by searching terms like impeach the mother?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what uh, what we did a uh, couple of months ago, right around the time that the uh, uh, this new Congress uh, was um uh, coming into office is we tried to reverse engineer the YouTube algorithm to some degree and understand why it recommends the videos it does. We took, uh, rather anodyne search terms that were, uh, popular in Google. You know, things like that phrase, impeach the mother, but also things like, uh, um, you know, uh, Congress inauguration, things like that, uh, and tried to, um automate what would happen. So we, you know, we, watched as the as YouTube recommended each video and tried to understand why it would do that and what we what we essentially found was that the outcomes were different re, almost regardless of 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 what you were searching so you could search impeach the mother 10 times uh, follow that uh video down down its recommended rabbit hole and you'd get something different uh and and really what we what we saw was that YouTube's algorithm is not only um uh, Sort of, uh, subject to its own whims, but, but, but nobody could really understand why it's doing what it's doing. It's optimizing for different, uh, metrics, including watch time, uh, and, and we can't really make sense of it. And I, and I'm not really certain that even the engineers that set the parameters there know what's, what it's doing. It just sort of, uh, has a mind of its own to some degree.
1: So people, Often complain about social media tracking us only toward political content we already agree with, uh, you know, locking us into our echo chambers. Is this the opposite complaint that YouTube is exposing people to hateful or hyperpartisan content that they disagree with?
2: Well, it's possible. It's it's actually a little bit of both, I think. And and it, what it's doing is it's pushing to extremes sort of regardless of the ideology. And I think that's what we noticed in this experiment. It wasn't just that, you know, a, uh, um, a search for, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would, would bring up some, you know, some far-right video. Uh, it would also bring up videos about her, um, that were, you know, overly, uh, fawning or, or sort of exaggerated, you know, on the side of, of supporting her. It, it, it sort of didn't really, um, it didn't matter what the ideology was, and it, it seems that YouTube's algorithm has no ideology. The only thing that it does is ruthlessly optimize to keep you engaged, to make sure that you will not leave the page. So that means videos that will uh, delight you. It also means videos that will upset you and make you want to watch another video. Uh, it, it's really it's it's prioritizing engagement above all else. And I think that's what we see uh, on both sides of the
1: spectrum. I want to play a clip. There there are people on the internet, as you know, working to de-shroud and explain the cultural interworkings of right-wing extremism. Uh, for example, Natalie Wynn, whose YouTube channel ContraPoints is devoted to explaining how that sort of ideology comes about and spreads online and how to recognize it. So here's a clip from a video that she made after Charlottesville called Decrypting the Alt-Right, How to Recognize a Fascist. Here's 48 seconds of the soundtrack from that.
0: Strategy six, irony, jokes, satire, and memes. Of course I wasn't actually being racist. It was just an edgy meme. Can't anyone take a joke anymore? Or will the Antifa fascists violently attack you over humor now too? Here's a uniquely millennial twist on the racist dog whistle. You shroud your sincere ideas in cartoon characters and memes, and then when called out, you mock your accuser for being a clueless normie who isn't in on the joke. Sometimes irony can be a safe way to explore ideas that you're not quite ready to own yet. Before I realized I was transgender, I used to jump at any opportunity to cross ironically. So when you see people joking about being Nazis, they could just be joking, or they could be using irony to partially conceal the truth. It's difficult to tell the difference, and that's the point.
1: And that's the point. Charlie, um, they could be just using irony to conceal, conceal the truth. Uh, or they could just be joking. It's difficult to tell the difference. And that's the point, says Natalie Wynn, about an alt-right strategy, uh, for attracting people online to their ideology. Is that familiar to you? It's absolutely familiar. And I think, you know, without going
2: into the details and, and, and amplifying the messages in the, in the shooters, the New Zealand shooters manifesto, you could see that, um, that the contents of that manifesto was laden in those types of ironic in jokes with those types of communities, the sort of, you know, leaving all these different traps and, uh, for for journalists and, and, and making it very difficult for anyone trying to figure out motivations to parse. That is part of the point. Um, and I think what it speaks to, especially with, with regard to the Internet, is the communities that these platforms can foster, whether it's, you know, Facebook and Facebook groups, whether it's a community around a, a specific YouTuber or a YouTube video, or a lot of these message boards, places like 4chan, places like Reddit, those places foster these senses of community. And, and and you know, when we're thinking about online radicalization, a, th- a really good thing to keep in mind is how, how these communities are formed and how uh, people become uh, emboldened by them. They're not only indoctrinated to an ideology, but they're trying to perform for their group by sort of upping the ante every single time. And I think one thing that we can see from the New Zealand shooter is that All of the digital breadcrumbs that that he left uh, signal that he was performing for this group of people. He was trying to get attention much in the same way as you might, uh, you know, try to get attention by posting something on a message board.
3: I think this raises an interesting question about whether there should be uh, maybe on the part of the state and you bring up ample evidence about European anti-hate uh, speech laws to to make this a at least a plausible scenario to imagine what sort of countervailing force should be exercised or could be exercised on corporations as they exist now, because you bring up really poignantly, I think the, uh, and this is provocative uh, to a lot of people. Uh, the case of Dylan Roof, the uh, killer, and um, who shot up a a, a church, um, a black church in uh, uh, Charleston, was it?
4: Uh, yes, South
3: Carolina. South yes. Carolina, and uh, that was, uh, you know, he, as a, partly as a result of his radicalization through the 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 concept of black on white crime um which yes. is a a watchword of the you know the far right you know anywhere from proud boys to the actual nazis uh are going to explicitly talk about this and they'll frame it in a clever way where uh, seemingly where it's like, Oh, well, what about white on black crime? It's almost non-existent. And you're like, why aren't you considering the vast majority of violence, which is not interracial you know, transracial or whatever. Uh, But anyway, the whole point is that through this very narrow framing, he was led to presumably sites that care about this sort of thing uh, because obviously no one else is, is, is religiously following the concept of black on white crime. You write, he was not led to counter to anti-racist websites that could describe the history, uh, of the, 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 what is it, the conservative citizens council, the, this racist group in the South, uh, and its articulated aims, uh, in its statement of principles, uh, that reflect a long history of anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-Muslim fervor, um, and you say, there is no federal, state, or local regulation of the psychological impact of the internet, obviously. Yet, big data analytics and algorithms derived from it hold so much power in over-determining decisions. Uh, there is no counterposition, nor is there a disclaimer or framework for contextualizing what we get. Had Dylan Roof, uh, you know, uh, seen the way that uh, this works, basically, uh, he would, he could have, one would hope, you're right, uh, that he would have, uh, you know, uh, changed his ways. But do you think that uh, there is regulation that's sort of sensible that could be enacted in the vein of restriction on speech? What do you think should be put forward as an alternative to the way that Google is regulated or, or other search engines are regulated now? Or does the state not have anything to do with it in our context?
4: Well, I think the state has a lot to do with it. And, you know, before we all give up on the state or the public, I will just say, you know, my feeling is that while the state has been implicated in incredible violence um, globally, uh, and this is not just the state in terms of the U.S., but, the, you know, governments all over the world are implicated in all kinds of um, disastrous effects for vulnerable people, Um the state is also, and public institutions in particular, that are funded by taxpayers or funded by the public, to me are not to be given up on. Uh, and so I, I want to make sure I make this distinction, because uh, many times, you know, people think of corporations as the state now, because they're synonymous. And I think we shouldn't completely cede uh, to that notion. And it's, it's perfectly legitimate to want democratic institutions in our society that serve the interests of everyone and not just the majority, because if you're, you know, in the case, in my case, I'm, you know, African-American, I'm in the minority. So numerically, so it's not just about, it's a plurality of people who need to be protected uh, by the public interest Organizations. So let me just say that as just a framework for thinking about what I'll say next, which is mm-hmm. there are other places in the world. Certainly, you brought up um, the EU, which has much more um, careful analysis of uh, and policy uh, that's c- coming forth uh, around privacy, surveillance, protection, the right to be forgotten the ways in which uh, people and ideas get uh, represented and misrepresented. Now, in the case of Germany, which I think people think of generally, uh, think of Germany as having the most, uh, you know, some people might call it stringent or robust, um, robust, <laughs> right. Um, you know, others might say thoughtful um, kinds of approaches to thinking about protecting the public we have to contextualize why they are where they are in their policy. Um right. ideas. I think people can guess. Yeah, it's called the Holocaust. Yeah. So, you know, they remember Germany has a much more uh um enviable reckoning with the Holocaust in the way that let's say the United States does not have that reckoning with colonization and enslavement of Africans. And indigenous people. So we have a diff, two different, really different historical memories about the role of speech in leading to travesties, human rights uh, abuses, mm-hmm. genocide, holocaust. And in the in in Germany, you know, their conceptions. Germany, France, in particular, think about speech as a precursor to act to action. And behavior too. They understand speech in a different context. You know, in the U.S., we have the First Amendment and we talk about freedom of speech and freedom of speech is incredibly important. And you're not going to really ever hear me argue against that. But I will say speech in context is valuable for understanding how it also leads to someone like Dylan Roof and dozens of other Mass shooters and people in the u s who have been quietly radicalized quite frankly toward racist violence in our society and um, and for which we don 't have a logic yet uh, that 's widely understood about the relationship between online radicalization and and activities like mass shootings that happen in our society that are also motivated by hate. Uh, and racism. So I I think we have to, this is where we need the space of a book or this conversation to really spend time understanding these relationships and just falling down on slogans like free speech at all costs or free speech is the most important thing without understanding how disinformation and propaganda in particular played a huge role leading up to the Holocaust. They certainly, um play a huge role in right-wing extremism in the United States. And much of that just gets, uh, you know, people turn the other way. They don't want to take it on. It seems too difficult, I guess. Um, and, and then when you start talking about their kind of like the precious Silicon Valley companies and the roles in which they play in propagating this kind of content, well, you know, now we actually have to start talking about whether... They have to be held to account mm. for fueling and that, disinformation and and
5: that's an interesting point, especially when you bring up Germany because I think something I learned about whenever the whole alt right movement was beginning to sort of peak online. I found out that changing um your Twitter account setting to Germany actually the in your settings, not just your location or your profile, it caused some far right profiles to be withheld from viewership. And it would show a warning that said so-and-so's account withheld. And then it shows you the countries that it was being withheld in. And in German, in the case of Germany, um, one of the reasons is they have a very strict um, hate crime law. And in 2017, October, 2017, they passed a new law specifically targeting hate speech and incitement to hatred being published on social media platforms. Mm -hmm. And it even fines technology companies up to like $59 million if they don't quickly remove the violating content. And so what a lot of people, especially women of color began to do whenever they were being hit by a lot of these horrible fucking Nazi accounts is they would change their location and it didn't ban everyone from view do you mean they would change it to it Germany can, right they would change it to Germany or even France because it then would make it so they would wouldn't have to deal with some of these accounts it didn't work all of the time but it worked enough at the time where it was at least partially yep. helpful so I and it really is something that we have to be looking at. I guess, restricting access to these people in, in some way in order to be able to function online without having to feel as though our every move is being tracked by fascists.
4: Yeah, I mean, listen, I am, uh, first of all, that's a good pro tip right there, because I didn't know that about changing my Twitter settings. Are. And hey, I I mean, we're winning now, because, you know, <laughs> this is, these, I certainly get targeted with some BS that I don't appreciate uh, on social media or, you know, even in my inbox. Um, and, I'll, you know, the idea of regulating anti-Semitism and hate speech in France and Germany, you know, that's not brand new. I mean, eBay, Amazon, all of the big tech companies, not just the social media companies, no one can use the Internet to sell Nazi propaganda, paraphernalia, or to propagate those ideas, and without facing considerable fines in Germany and France. And, you know, that, uh, in in context, people, you know, in the US, I think, are kind of understand it, because that because World War II maybe wasn't that long ago, um, or there's like some way in which people can cut in on it. But weirdly, when we're in the US, and we have you know, I don't know, black people holding any random object being killed um, by, you know, law enforcement, or we have um, the uh, occupation of indigenous land, whether it's Standing Rock, or, you know, like a whole host of things, real time happening in the US, then all of a sudden, we don't understand this relationship between, you know, uh, fascism, and what we see happening in our society. And of course, you know, if we think there's no relationship between what people are doing online and what they do when they get off the internet, and this is one of the things that internet scholars have been talking about for a long time, which is what you do on the internet is in real life. It's Mm -hmm. not somewhere else. (laughs) You know, it's not in a cloud. Um, It's, it's, it's happening in the world. The internet is material. Our engagement with it is real. It's not meaningless. It's not ephemeral. And if we think that the way that people speak online with, with hate and vitriol doesn't turn into, um, trolling them, which is your, your point and, um, sending hate mail to their house, telling them all about their kids and how they're going to get them and um, stalking and all kinds of things that quite frankly don't happen on the internet are happening at people's houses, at the places where they work, at the places where they worship, then, you know, we're missing it. And this to me again is why uh, we can't just relate to tech companies as um, platforms, as like dumb pipes, you know, as not, political or not part of the media landscape. They are absolutely part of the media They're curating content all the time for us. And people are gaming that content and manipulating it. And um and it works in service of real world political action. Um, and and for some people, in the case of Dylan Roof, I think we see one of the more tragic examples of what it meant that his online radicalization was actually more potent and powerful than his experience at his high school. Because I remember after the murder, I remember um, people reporting out that he had black friends Mm, at his high school. mm -hmm. You know, he's being raised in the South. I I mean, he's, he's not being raised like in, um, you know, a white survivalist community in Utah you know what I'm saying? Or somewhere where there are like no black people anywhere around. I mean, he's in the, in the, in the South, in the deep South. And, <clears throat> and he has a lived experience that then is eclipsed by what he finds online. And that shifts his sense of reality. And in his own words, he says, you know, he developed uh, his racial awareness by going to these right wing sites,
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help you take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair. Outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is a genuinely important thing. So it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best of the Left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the code LEFT.
6: You ruined social media a little bit for us skeptics today during your talk. Mm -hmm. Um, Facebook, Twitter, and you talked a little bit about the algorithm, right? It's right. a nebulous idea, but it has so much power. Yeah. So what have you learned about the algorithm and <laughs> what would you advise us skeptics to kind of be wary of when it comes to this almighty algorithm? Well,
7: it's interesting. I, I, I don't know that I have a message for skeptics specifically as opposed to other people, but the amount of power that the algorithm has in our lives to decide what we're seeing is really stunning and striking, right? So we've reached a point in time where the majority of what people see the, of the media they consume, you know, people are watching, as I said in my talk, a billion hours of YouTube a day, mm-hmm. right? People are spending 24 hours a week online. Their decisions of what they watch are not being made by other people, right? It's not like, you know, say what you will about the old days when there were only four networks, right? And you and that was your only choice on what you could watch on TV, right? At least there was another person on the other end saying, hey, I think this would be good or bad to watch, right? and you know yeah they were trying to make money and they didn't know what's like your best interest at heart but at least they were a person right now it's an algorithm right that decides and it's an algorithm that is just there to optimize your engagement with it right um it's just uh trying to get you know it's just trying to addict you and get you to stay as long as possible so it'll show you anything in order to get you to stay right um and that uh and that means you see some really weird shit right um Uh, That means the, you know, and not only that, but we are ourselves making content in order to suit the whims of the algorithm. Right. And so we're making content in order to please machines, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's really
2: weird.
6: It is weird. And you know, it's, my kids are seven and five. You brought up the, um, the unpacking like egg opening and package opening videos, Um, Keep your
7: kids off of YouTube So
6: here's the thing Number one, Daddy Finger Number two, Baby Shark Those have more views than 500 million I think they have like a billion views Yeah. But um, do you have thoughts on the algorithm And a non-human making decisions about what people watch And children I mean, I'm sure you've heard the controversy over screen time Should we take YouTube away from our kids?
7: Uh, I think that I don't have a problem with kids being on screens per se. Like, um, you know, I'm not afraid of the screen as opposed. Look, first of all, I don't have kids, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, I don't plan to have any. So it's it's a little bit easy for me to say, Fair right? Enough, yeah. You know, so I I don't want to make too many statements about what other people should do. But what what are my actual concerns, right? I, I'm not concerned about oh, these kids are spending all day on their screens. You know, that's that's not that big a deal for me. But it's a question of what they're consuming on the screens, right? Mm-hmm. And YouTube is – this is letting your kids into a slot machine, right? This is letting your kids use a slot machine because um these, the algorithm that they're using is – Specifically designed to get you to watch as long as possible to get you to watch video after video after video with ads Yeah with ads and it shows you things that be that Well, that's why they want you to watch long mm-hmm. as possible to go the but ads and you know They show you you wait five seconds and it shows you another video right and, uh, another video starts, And so, you know, you can hit play once it'll just go forever, right? Oh, yeah, and um, it'll Start showing you weirder and weirder and weirder things um, but more importantly it's tuning it to get you to not look away right and so it's the videos are sort of tuning to get children to lock in and watch as long as possible no matter what is on the screen and what what is on the screen ends up being really fucking strange right mm-hmm. and so in terms of like should the kids be on the screens or not well again it just depends on what they're watching if your kid is watching there's a, there's a big difference between if your wa- kid is watching uh, PBS and if they're watching right. YouTube, right? Yeah. PBS, at least we know, you know, there's at the, at the other end of there, there's, there's a child educator mm-hmm. who's, you know, had some training ideally. Right. And so that, that, that's what I'd say to people. The, but the fact that we're putting children in front of YouTube is going to be one of those things where in a couple of decades, we're going to be like, we can't believe we did
6: oh, that. Oh, right. And you know, I, I, don't judge anyone for giving their kids YouTube, but it got pretty creepy, and we uninstalled it on our kids' devices. Good. And of course, we don't give them free reign of their devices.
7: But ye, yeah. I mean, there's such differences. Look, I mean, I'm a I'm a Nintendo fan, right? I love, So was my
6: son. Oh, he's is he? Mar- yeah, he loves Mario. Is, is, he was Mario like three years in a row for Halloween. He's does, five. It, does he
7: have a Nintendo Switch?
6: Um, he's he's probably going to get one. Okay, soon. so but I won't let him listen to this. Uh, okay, good, good,
7: good okay. so what I'd say about that is you need to look at what your media is trying to get you to do, right mm-hmm. so in terms of games, right, there are games that where the whole point is to get you to spend more money on the game right and and it it, it yeah. the game makes you want to get to the next level, but the only way to get to the next level really is either play it for a hundred hours or to spend spend money, spend money right um nintendo at least on the nintendo switch they don't do that mm-hmm. nintendo's model and it's the old fashioned way right the wii seems that ways. way too the yeah. wii is the same way mm-hmm. you spend 40 dollars or 60 dollars to buy the game one time and then you just have a nice time mm-hmm. you know and there's no dark patterns there's no design that's trying to get you to do something yeah. and right
8: there's
6: no dude making videos and trying to get uh, trying to get your kid to watch exactly i don't know whatever he's doing with
7: exactly And so I would actually say, if your kid is like, you know, hey, my kid needs to be on the screen, you Mm -hmm. know, like this is, I'm sorry, like we're on a long road trip, Mm -hmm. I got to give my kid the screen. Mm -hmm. Give him a Nintendo Switch instead of an iPad, okay? Right? Because endorsing
6: Nintendo. I mean, look, I love Nintendo because I (laughs) grew up with it,
7: but but Nintendo is like the the content on the Switch is more wholesome than what's on an iPad, right? Because an iPad has access to. A lot of dark, weird shit.
6: Right. We have more control over what happens with Nintendo and our children, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I could see that.
1: The surge in white supremacy, terrorist attacks, and alleged plots revealed the U.S. package bomber, the U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant arrest, the Pittsburgh synagogue attack, and now the New Zealand mosque attack, all incredibly since October, has prompted a new focus on two things that are missing to prevent future attacks. The social media companies aren't doing everything they could be doing, and the U.S. government Isn't doing everything it could be doing on Fox News Sunday, acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney was like, who us?
9: Not sure what more you want the president to do. You may say you want to give him a national speech to address the nation. That's fine. Maybe we do that. Maybe we don't.
1: So forget about Trump and acting chief of staff Mulvaney getting serious about this. And as for the social media companies, BuzzFeed News is reporting on ways they're cracking down on Islamist extremist groups, but not on Islamophobic ones. So our first guests today are BuzzFeed News reporter Jane Litvinenko, who wrote that article, BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Mack on what Reddit in particular is and isn't doing, And Michael German, who is a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice, their Liberty and National Security program, and he's a former FBI special agent countering domestic terrorism. Welcome, all three of you. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Jane, can you describe first the extent of anti-Muslim hate speech on social media as your article documents it?
10: Look, it's difficult to describe, even put a number, to how much anti Muslim hate speech lives on Facebook. But what we do know is that it's vast and it's profitable. Uh, Recently, a news outlet called Lead Stories reported on a network of 70 Macedonian websites that have been publishing disinformation purely for financial profit, not politically motivated. And of the top ten stories that they've spread, eight had the word Muslim in the title. And this is something that we've been seeing for years, that anti-Muslim hate is financially profitable and has been allowed to be on Facebook. Pretty much uh, freely, just uh, to-, to spread there uh, without many barriers.
1: You're talking about anti Muslim hate for profit. For profit. Can you talk about some of the mechanics of that? <laughs>
10: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we see repeatedly on Facebook is uh, news articles that are either completely fake or are so partisan they barely have any truth to them uh, spread on the platform and get shared fairly widely. The strategy there is if you can stroke outrage and if you can get enough shares, comments, likes, you'll bring some people onto your websites who then view advertisement and make you some money. This isn't the only type of anti-Muslim hate we see on Facebook, but it just shows how it's so prevalent that it is financially profitable.
1: Is this kind of in the same category as what we saw during the 2016 election campaign that was revealed later that there was a lot of anti-Hillary material being posted um, because it was profitable? It wasn't actually politically motivated. It was, you know, kids in Macedonia and things like that, I think, is is what was revealed because they could make money on it. That sold and anti-Trump didn't.
10: Yeah that's that's precisely a similar problem so we're seeing uh we're seeing this trend in for-profit disinformation websites for years now uh we saw it during the 2016 election we've seen uh anti-muslim um for-profit articles also 2017 and 2018 and now. This is something that's been going on on the platform for years that they have been either unwilling or unable to police.
1: And are there other kinds of hate being perpetrated online, for-profit, anti-Semitism, anti-Black, anything else?
10: Yeah, of course. Um, We definitely see a lot of uh, marginal and at-risk communities being targeted I mean, even the Russian trolls after the 2016 election, it turned out, were targeting communities of color and both stroking hate and trying to speak to them. What we know works on Facebook is outrage. We know that stroking anger against certain groups gets you pretty far in the Facebook sharing environment. And so when we look at the way Facebook is used, that's why a lot of at-risk groups are being targeted by either for-profit websites or trolling campaigns or you name it.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestoflife.com You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
11: In this book, 21 Lessons, you're saying we're now on the verge of a revolution, one that we can't really understand because we haven't been through it yet. But artificial intelligence and biotechnology are converging somehow. What are the implications here?
12: The main implication is that soon it will be possible to hack humans. Uh, The most important fact you need to know about life in the 21st century is that you are and we are uh, hackable animals, Uh, which means that an external system can understand me, can understand my feelings, my desires, my choices, even better than I understand myself. Uh, and the implication of that is that an external system can also manipulate me and control me and in some cases even replace me.
11: So we basically have no meaning if that's the case. I mean, we all feel terrible if our computer is hacked, but this is us, <laughs> our identity, our being being hacked.
12: Uh, yes, there is a, you know, there is a lot of talk these days about hacking computers and smartphones and bank accounts and everybody's panicking about it. But the real thing is that very soon you could hack human beings. And, you know, I mean this literally, that you can understand the human code, you can understand how the brain of, of a particular person uh, operates. And the political and economic and social implications are immense. We are just now given some foretaste of things to come in things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the fake news epidemic. Uh, you know, fake news have been around since the beginning of history. But the difference this time is that you can tailor particular stories to particular persons, They can show you one story and show a very very different story to your neighbor uh, because they know your unique weaknesses. Uh, When Hitler gave a speech on the radio, he had to uh, address the lowest common denominator of millions of Germans. But today, uh, demagogues can tell completely different things to, to different people. And as I said, this is just a foretaste. I mean, the way in which trolls and hackers and all kinds of uh, corporations and governments are trying to understand you in order to sell you something, to sell you a product or to sell you a a politician, up till now, it's only based or mainly based on things you do in the outside world. What you buy, what you search for in, on, in in Google search engine, what kind of videos you watch on YouTube, uh, what kind of stories you click on. This is everything, all, all that is external and still it gives so much information about you. Can you give
11: an example, a very personal example? When have you actually felt as though you've been hacked?
12: Well, <laughs> um, let, let me think about it for for, for a moment. It happens all the time, you know, for example, with Google, that we go to some restaurant, me, me and my, my husband, he's the one carrying the smartphone in, in the family. I don't have <laughs> a smartphone. But we go to a restaurant, in, it happened in Tokyo, we went to this restaurant in Tokyo, and five minutes after we left, we got a message, please rate this restaurant. And it was this tiny hole. hall. Underground in some, in some uh, high rise in, in Tokyo. And we never told anybody and we didn't never never told Google that we went to this restaurant. But you know, five minutes later, we had this request. Uh, please rank this restaurant. I've had similar
11: uh, requests and they come back at me the next week and the week after and the week after the persistence of that sort of observation in the, in the fallout is tremendous.
12: Yeah, but we didn't look for the restaurant on Google Maps or anything. We just went there and probably, I, I'm not sure how it happens, but probably, uh, with the GPS in, in, in the smartphone, they can tell that you are in this particular restaurant. And you know, this is not very sinister. I mean, it's not being done as far as I know for any bad reason, but the implications are, are, are tremendous. That's actually not the this. only
11: thing that causes me some disturbance as I read through your vision of, of where we're at and where we're going. And In in 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, you actually have this chilling scenario that we're, we're sort of moving in two directions. And there's a almost distinct subspecies of humanity emerging. One, the very, very, very wealthy. They can buy anything, uh, you know, intelligence. Mm-hmm. They can buy health. Um, they're in control of everything, including the rest of us who are sort of redundant, useless, ignorable. We're, we, we're, we're almost not even on the planet. What's the evidence you see of that happening?
12: Well, first of all, it, it's just a possibility. It's not an, a, an, an inevitable prophecy. Nobody knows how the world will actually look like in 2050 or 2100. Uh, as a historian, I don't try to predict the future. I just try to map different possibilities and to highlight the most dangerous possibilities in the hope that uh, we will prevent it from happening. Now, what you see today in the world, uh, maybe at two very important processes, is first of all that uh, more and more people are facing not exploitation, but irrelevance. Hmm. In the 20th century, the big struggle of the masses was against exploitation, they were struggling against these small elite that exploited them. But to be exploited at least means that they need you. Now, it's a very different story. More and more people find that they are struggling against irrelevance, against elites that don't exploit you. They just don't need you. And this is far more scary Because, first of all, it means that you're really powerless and meaningless. They don't need you for anything. And secondly, that it's going to be a much more difficult struggle. So, And and we are already beginning to see it. Whereas in the 20th century, you had these big uh, socialist revolutions of the exploited masses rebelling against their exploiters, their, their oppressors. You can, at least one interpretation of the populist rebellions of the last few years in the United States, in, uh, in, in, in Britain, now in Italy, is that at least some of the people, they are rebelling against irrelevance. They are feeling that the future is passing them by that they are being left behind by the enormous advances of artificial intelligence and bioengineering and globalization and blockchain and all these uh, great words, which they hardly understand what they actually mean, but they do understand that it's not about them. They are being left behind. If you lived, let's say, in the 1930s, so in many places around the world... Life was much, much harder than today. But at least everybody told you, even the communists and the Nazis, everybody told the common people that they are the future. You looked at the posters on, on the wall, and usually the posters showed these steelworkers and, uh, and farmers in heroic poses. And the message was that the ordinary human being is the most important thing in the world. And now more and more people feel that the future doesn't need them. So this is one process which we are already beginning to see around us. The other process is a major shift in the uh, in, in, in the meaning of power in the world. In ancient times, land was the most important asset, and politics was a struggle to control land. Then in the modern age, machinery became more important than land and politics became the struggle to control the machines. Who owns the machinery, the factories, the the mines and so forth? Now, already today, data is replacing machines as the most important asset in the world and politics becomes the struggle to control the data. And if too much of the data is concentrated in the hands of too few people, whether you call them a corporation or a government or whatever, it doesn't matter. If they control the data, if they have the monopoly over the data, they control not just all of us, they control the future of the world and the future of life.
11: But it, it sounds completely futile. I mean, it, it sounds as though not only do we not have control, that we sort of didn't know we didn't have control. I mean, we're, we're, we're in this completely vacuum situation surrounded with, by nothing, no hope, certainly no politics. I mean, it, you know, in the 20th century, there were, there were like three options. You had communism mm-hmm. or you had liberalism and you had fascism. And we all thought we knew which choice to take. Now those are, completely irrelevant, as are we.
12: Uh, No, I don't think that we are already irrelevant, and I don't think we need to give up hope already. Um, These are uh, processes, historical developments, but we can still do something about it. The debate has hardly even began. I mean, so far, most people have not even realized that data is now the most important asset in the world. So they are willing to give all their personal data for free or, or maybe in exchange for email services and funny cat videos. <laughs> and they vote in elections and they don't ask, what is your policy about uh, data privacy? What is your policy about artificial intelligence? If you looked at the 2016 elections in the US, so the only reference to these technologies were the was the email scandal of Hillary Clinton. But what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats in the, in the U.S. in their attitude to AI and to data privacy? Nobody talks about it. Uh, we can start to have a conversation now. It's not too late. And we can start formulating uh, different policies, even different ideologies. How do we want to manage these enormous opportunities and and enormous dangers. I mean, it should also be remembered that it's not all bad. I I tend to focus on the dangers, but of course it should be said that there are enormous promises in the new technologies. I can give a few examples uh, uh, if you want. But but the key thing is not to give up hope. Oh, it's hopeless. We are all doomed. But to realize there is still time, not a lot of time, but there is still time. And if we now start a a new political debate, realizing that the biggest questions we face are not immigration and not terrorism and not trade agreements. The biggest questions are what to do with artificial intelligence and big data algorithms and bioengineering. There is still time to prevent the worst outcomes and to harness Uh, these uh, new technologies to do uh, a lot of good things.
9: If the problem is proliferation and memification and glorification... Doesn't the larger responsibility fall on the social networks, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube? Facebook took down a million and a half posts of the original massacre live stream, which is an astounding intervention. But ultimately, just a drop in the bucket? This is not a rhetorical question. It's a question. Mm
13: -hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about amplification, we do have to understand that the distribution of content online, be it journalist articles or user-generated content, is different from the ways in which the press has acted as a gatekeeper in the past. But I will say that the press still holds significant authority within the minds of the public as the first draft of history. And these are the documents that are going to survive this moment in Internet history, So, for instance, algorithms are not stable. So in a week from now, we're going to see changes to what shows up on the first page of Google. In a month from now, we're going to see even more radical changes in terms of what happens when you search for Christchurch. So it's important that we do journalism today so that other social scientists and historians have a record of what happened. But amplification is a passing problem. It's a problem of now. And I should say that this was a choice that Facebook made to take this content down. One of the things that we've noted in the content moderation policies of Twitter, for instance, is that they don't take down certain posts that they consider newsworthy even if they – are breaking their terms of service around harassment or hate speech or incitement to violence. And so we have to recognize that the platform companies are making a choice, but they haven't really developed a code of ethics or a set of principles about amplification that I think now that this event has happened, that they will have to do in the future.
9: On this show, we've often reported about the conflict of interest that faces the platforms. They literally profit in dollars and cents from the interests of malicious actors and just the morbid curiosity and impulses of billions of users. Now, in the aftermath of something like Christchurch, it's, of course, easy and important to ask tough questions of the press and to demand Accountability from the platforms. But in some ways, does not the fault lie within users, within us?
13: One of the things that the research that I did at Data & Society is really focused on is the way in which the profit incentives on platforms misalign with society or user interest. That is to say that if I post more and more extreme content, if I use my live stream to do something horrific in order to call attention to something, I'm really incentivized by that platform's business model to do so. We cannot know what the intent of many of the 1.5 million uploads on Facebook were, but these aren't just people that support this ideology. Some of these are looking to upload the content for clickbait. We can know that some of them were profit-driven.
9: I guess what I was getting at is that, like you, I am also extremely suspicious of the 1.5 million uploads of that video, and I suspect the worst. But uh, to tell you the truth, I, I'm much more concerned with the whatever it is about human nature that makes this ecosystem survive.
13: In 2015, when I turned to studying hate movements online, I was really horrified to see the amount of places that you could go to if you were interested in white supremacy or white nationalism. And I can't say, though, that that felt all that different from the communities that I was exposed to as a young punk rocker in Boston, where there were a lot of skinheads who were doing active recruitment at different clubs. And and I've I've seen people fall into those traps of trying to make meaning out of their lives by hating others. And unfortunately, you know, the internet can do many things for many people. But we've also reached a scale now where we're not talking about small subcultures online. We're not talking about interest groups online. What really scares me about the ways in which these communities foment their rage online is the degree to which they're becoming internationally networked. But in a strange way, I'm hopeful that the good nature of others will be able to overcome this as we face and expose this undercurrent online.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Brian Lehrer Show, introducing the idea of algorithms that are geared to keep your attention at all costs, delete your account, discuss the tension between free speech and hate speech in an age of lightning-fast propaganda, point of inquiry, spoke with Adam Conover about the algorithms behind the screens children are looking at, The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the profitability of hate on social media, Ideas from the CBC, talked with Yuval Noah Harari about the algorithms capable of hacking humans, and finally, we just heard On the Media discussing the role of the media, the platforms, and the public during events like the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. Members already got a bonus episode this week for April Fool's Day, or as it's better known in France, April Fishes. You'll have to tune in to find out why that's the case. Or look it up yourself, I guess. We ended up having a long and detailed discussion about humor and comedy to mark the occasion. A lot of people don't know this, but I occasionally make jokes... Uh, it's just that they're often the kind that most people don't notice, which can get me in trouble sometimes when uh, people end up thinking I'm just being an asshole, so we discuss that as well. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, I understand. Consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved. And take part in the poll each weekend. Visit Patreon.com/slash/bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now we'll hear from you.
14: My name is Ty DePas. I'm a expatriate New Yorker living in South Carolina. In response to the question, given the choice between a cisgender, straight, white male candidate like Bernie Sanders, who shares my values and political perspective versus a woman, a person of color, an LGBTQ, or some combination thereof who doesn't, for example, Obama, Booker, Harris, who would I choose and why? I suppose that some might view this as a sticky question, perhaps even a social justice litmus test. But for me, given the stakes involved in the fiercely urgent need for dramatic change in the near term, I'm compelled to reject the notion that merely placing dark faces in high places is either noble or ultimately useful to the struggle for justice, equity, dignity, and respect. First of all, a bit of self-disclosure a black Afro-Cuban-American, born in Harlem and raised in the South Bronx, coming of age during the sociopolitical ferment in the 60s. And while my earliest activism was around issues of poverty and racist policing, I was all too soon engaged in anti-draft, anti-war activism as an off-campus war resistor. And after more than 50 years in the trenches, having lived in six states and eight cities on both coasts, North and South, I'm saddened that the only non-traditional candidates I've ever supported unreservedly were Representative Shirley Chisholm in 1972, Boston mayoral candidate Mel King, True Godfather, the rainbow and the coalition in 1983 and jesse jackson's first presidential run in 1984. i abandoned the democratic party halfway through bill clinton's first term when it became clear that his third-rate politics of triangulation was just a sop to center-right republicanism compounded by the thinly veiled assault on democracy posed by gingrich's contract on america that said I took a lot of flack for calling candidate Obama the great white hype based on his first public performance with his one nation speech delivered at the O4 Democratic National Convention in Boston. And while it's arguable that his rhetoric was meant as aspirational, not an assessment of major social and political alignments, it fed the early illusion of approaching a post-racial society. Obama demonstrated a disturbing willingness to appease white conservatives while readily vilifying the left and chastising the African-American community. The rise of the Tea Party, the serial acts of public scorn heaped on his presidency, as well as the the subsequent election of Donald Trump, it only underscored the foolishness of that delusion. I could go on in detail on his hawkishness and ultimately destabilizing policies in the Middle East, his punitive actions against immigrants and refugees, his failure to address the criminality of Wall Street and the big banks, his weak-team response to repeated mass shootings and the deaths of young blacks at the hands of cops, renter cops, and wannabe white vigilantes. But I'm sure that many of your listeners are not only quite familiar with Obama's more glaring shortcomings, but remain deeply puzzled over his Nobel Award in light of his bait especially in light of his bait-and-switch support for this forever war on terror. In closing, I believe I've answered the original question. However, I'd like to suggest that there's a deeper issue at hand. That is, while this rising crop of young progressive politicians share similar biographies and roots in the experiences of poor and marginalized people, making them worthy of our support, Few of these talented people will survive the party's corporate-friendly vetting processes to be selected as standard-bearers. Indeed, just as the Democratic Leadership Committee, DLC, was established in the late 80s by Clinton centrists in the wake of Dessie's 88 run, and it was established to forestall any future left insurgency. And structured rules will no doubt emerge from the high-profile struggles currently being waged over ensuring meaningful influence for previously marginalized groups, a robust response to the threat of global warming, questioning U.S. policy on Israel-Palestine, and reestablishing respect for the commons. These are the issues that, for me, are the litmus test and what color you are matters less than what the hell are you going to do in order to deal with this stuff. As I said before, I'm a black man, but dark faces in high places only reminds me of a quote from Zora Neale Hurst. Not all skin folk is skin folk. Thank you very much.
8: Hi, Jay. This is Arielle, your member from Seattle calling yet again, this time in response to episode 1259 and Whitney's comments about where to allocate sort of points first. And I think your analogy for like doing a math problem backwards falls short because a lot of us, unfortunately, aren't going to have or aren't going to spend the time to evaluate each and every candidate on the totality of all of their policies and all of their unique perspectives. And so Whitney's point of where to allocate points first, lets us sort of break people down into tiers. So like I could say, okay, I'm going to look at Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro first, investigate their policies, see where what I think of them, and then move on to you know, some of the other candidates. Because I honestly am not going to spend the time fully investigating all 20 plus candidates for all of their policies. And so the idea of sort of prioritizing, I think, people who are investigating what their policy issues are makes a lot of sense. So instead of saying, okay, the first people I'm going to look at are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Beto O'Rourke, three straight white guys, makes a lot of sense to sort of make sure that certain people or certain perspectives get more fully explored. So those are my thoughts, and I really like the way that Whitney put it, so thanks for sharing that perspective. Bye.
15: Hi Jay, this is Laura in Alameda, California. I'm a bit behind on my episodes, but I just listened to your very well done episode about the Electoral College and the National Popular Vote. Uh, At the end of it, you were talking about um, getting some opinions from people who are not white males. So here I am calling about the 2020 election for president. Uh, I think the Democrats are already kind of blowing it in terms of there's already more than a dozen candidates and we don't really have the, um, you know, it's just such a waste of resources right now to, to be spread so thin already. Um, in terms of, you know, everybody's going to be asking for money and time and, you know, hey, yeah, it's great that that we have more than three like the last time, but really, once you start getting over maybe a half a dozen candidates, it just starts to get to be a little bit ridiculous. The platform that I would like to see, the, 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 the candidates that I want to see come out are Sanders and Warren. Sanders for president, Warren for vice president. I, I would be happy with either one of them as president, but... There's something that I wanted to just put out there as, as something to think about. One of the reasons why I think it would be a better ticket with Sanders on top is because of the debates. And Hillary Clinton, one of the things I think is very admirable about the woman is that she has such composure. Uh, she had such composure during the Benghazi hearings and, and even – You know, I just can't imagine being able to hold it together the way she has done it uh, over all these years after all the attacks that have been made on her. But when she debated Trump, I think it really frazzled her. You know, she still pretty well held it together, but he is not an easy person for a woman to go against. And I think if Warren debates him, I'm not convinced it's going to go very well. She's already been targeted by him with the whole Pocahontas stuff. So um, I just think in terms of strategy, it would be a better ticket with Sanders on top, Sanders debating Trump and Warren debating Pence. You know, we live in a dominator society and I have a feeling, you know, it's one of the things that a lot of uh, people might not admit to, men might not admit to, but I think some of the people who voted for Trump Were men who just can't stand seeing a woman come out on top they wanted to see a man come out on top top so they wanted to see Trump Trump Hillary so and I think they would still want him to Trump Warren so I'd like to you know I would love to hear from some of your male listeners to say you know what is their feeling from their male peers do they think that a lot of their male peers have some issues with a debate where someone like Trump comes in and, uh, you know, just really, you know, he's, Bernie debating Trump at least would be able to take him on on his complete lack of character and, uh, and of course on the issues. So it becomes a much cleaner debate, I think, with Sanders versus Trump versus, um, Warren versus, uh, Trump. And then the other thing is, is I think, uh, you know, once they, the, the ticket is decided, I think they should figure out really, really early on, be promoting who they want to bring in as the rest of their team. For Attorney General, someone like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, one of those could be a fantastic Attorney General. For Secretary of the Interior, I'd love to see someone who's a Native American, maybe someone who was uh, big at Standing Rock. For Secretary of Education, hey, how about one of the um, Parkland survivors? The sooner they can show who the team is and bring that team together, the better the chance that we have of uh, getting, you know, taking on this terrible Republican administration. And also we have to worry about the Senate races and the House races and the governors and all that other stuff. So So the sooner we can figure out what the ticket is and the sooner they bring the platform and a a full ticket together, the sooner we can go about starting to really uh, build the energy and uh, build the team and uh, go for it. So anyway... Uh, Like I said, I'd like to hear some uh, responses and what other people think about this issue. And, you know, maybe there's a lot of people think I'm completely wrong about, you know, Warren against Trump. And I'd like to, you know, just get some feeling for, you know, how that's going to how that might play out and who would be the best person to take him on. Thank you so very much. Thank you for all your work. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I I feel like we finally gotten to a point where no one has been, myself included, has been accused of being a, a racist or a misogynist or an anti-Semite so far this week at least. And I, I sort of just want to back away slowly from this conversation and, and let you guys talk uh, amongst yourselves. You know, it's, it's strange. How did this happen? Like, all I did was criticize Israel and then bring up the upcoming primary election, and all of a sudden people have strong opinions. Who could have seen that coming? So uh, seriously, though, I I will leave it there. If you have thoughts that you would like to uh, join in with, I absolutely welcome them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.